Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 42. When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. Then they brought him to Jesus. They threw their own clothes on the colt and they sat Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near to the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Carissa. <laughs> uh, my name is Kelly. I'm a pastor at Peace River Christian Fellowship down in OB, and many of you probably know my husband, Brian, uh, who's a pastor here on campus. Today, we're going to share with you um, some storylines in our lives about which we've had to get comfortable talking, even though we find that society, sometimes even family and friends, are not so comfortable. We are an adoptive family. We don't particularly look like our kids, we don't share the same genes, but we share love and a history and an extended family that includes their biological parents, their first parents. We have all grieved what has been lost in the fact that we couldn't birth our daughters and they couldn't live with their first mom and dad. And in this process, we've seen God work. Now, the temptation as you listen to this story will be to hear the simple storyline. An infertile couple finally has kids after a lot of work and a lot of heartache. That is part of the story for sure. And that story might kind of help us resolve our collective discomfort. But that is not the whole story. I invite you to listen more deeply to our story because there's more than that. There's a story of God's gentle and persistent call to love God and love others in the midst of difficulty. And what we're calling contested spaces today, where shutting down and saying no is much easier than opening up and saying yes. What do we mean by contested spaces? We mean those physical, emotional, social spaces where doing what is right and good might not be easy to figure out. We mean places where people might be in conflict, where love takes effort. 
We are talking about awkward, deeply awkward spaces here. Spaces that are often begging for transformation. And these these contested spaces often have the seeds of sacred space. There's no doubt that in your lives you bump up against some contested spaces. Some places that are begging for transformation. Some places where, where it's taking work in order to love. And our hope is, in our story, you will begin to see how God works in these everyday places. In 2013, I had the opportunity to travel to Israel and Palestine for a peace and justice conference that was sponsored by the Church of the Nazarene. A small group of us traveled around Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Hebron, Jericho, places where Palestinians and Israelis, Jews, Christians, Muslims, have been arguing about rights and borders and access for a very long time. Our work that week was to listen to people in these contested spaces. We visited people on all sides, both physically and ideologically, of the border walls between Israel and Palestine. And the people we listened to had one thing in common. They were working for peace. One place we visited was called the Tent of Nations, a family farm on the outskirts of Bethlehem. The Nasser family bought the farm from the Ottoman Empire in 1916. Now, since 1916, a lot has happened in the history of that area. Super interesting and complicated things that we don't have time to go into here. But the key for you to know is that in 1991, this Christian Palestinian family found out that the Israeli government would be confiscating their land. So for the last 26 years, the family has been fighting this land seizure in court while also living on the land, cultivating it, being family on it, even as Israeli settlements have continued to encroach upon the land. They are also living there in a particular way, with open arms. A painted rock as you come in the gate to their farm reads, we refuse to be enemies. And they live that out every day by opening the farm to visitors from around their region, from around the world, from every religion and every political affiliation. They provide space for people to work the land together, to talk, to listen, to worship together. The day we visited, before we worshipped and had communion together, we met in one of the caves uh, they have turned into a classroom to talk about their work of peace and justice that is rooted in their commitment to walk with Jesus. As Daoud Nassar shared about their life of Christian hospitality and witness, he said, we believe that peace will come. If not tomorrow, then after tomorrow. We believe that peace will come. If not tomorrow, then after tomorrow. Daoud's witness to God's faithfulness To bring about God's love and peace and justice in hard places has stuck with me. You see, for a Christian and an idealist like me, I want to engage and fix problems. I want to be the change. And as I sat with Daoud after learning about what seems to be completely intractable problems between people who all feel like they have legitimate claim to the same place, I was discouraged. I didn't have the answer. As a Christian and an idealist, I couldn't fix a thing. Daoud couldn't fix a thing, anything either. But here he stood 
on his land, his home, believing not only with his head but with his hands that peace would come. If not tomorrow, then after tomorrow. At the time, I didn't know how the faithfulness with which he lived out his belief in the faithfulness of God would connect with how God was calling our family to love in the midst of another contested space. For some time now, both Kelly and I have tried to be people who hold our plans and dreams with hands like this rather than with hands like this. We learned from some good preachers that God may often shift our plans and our dreams. And we recognize that it won't benefit us to resist God's voice or to be obstinate regarding our vision of the future. From the outset of our relationship, Kelly and I were both interested in building our family through adoption. Kelly's sister's family has adopted, and they've been a strong example to us. I had foster siblings for a time when I was in high school. Still, we felt a desire to begin our family by having a biological child so that we could experience all that comes with that. We planned carefully to avoid pregnancy for the first couple years of marriage because I was in this new job here at PLNU and also in graduate school at night at USD. A few years in, the time felt right, so we began trying to conceive a child. They say this can take some time and that a couple should keep at it, so to speak, for a year at least before medical testing for infertility. So we did so and we made appointments after a year. My appointment was first. We soon found ourselves seated at a doctor's desk with a computer displaying a scan of my anatomy between us. The doctor pointed out that I very likely had testicular cancer and, and that inexplicably we would not likely have any biological children in our life. He even went so far as to encourage us on the spot to adopt. Uh, he said if we wanted kids, we should do that rather than pursue expensive and uh, likely ineffective procedures, surgeries. He did this in such a quick and cavalier way you would have thought he was reading the menu at McDonald's. I was in a moderate state of shock and I replied, well, yes, doctor, we plan to adopt. That's always been in our plan. And now it seems it'll be our starting point. Now I made that sound quite simple, but right underneath the surface, it was anything but. A first major concern, cancer. Praise God, my cancer was discovered by this infertility testing. So early, they called it stage 1A cancer. Surgery was sufficient to treat it, and I would be spared radiation and chemotherapy. Though I am proudly a frequent flyer in the MRI machine, I've been in there more often than most. Shout out to PLNU for offering good health care insurance. And I'm grateful for Dr. Sunanda Pejavar, my most awesome oncologist, who takes care to this day to make sure the cancer does not return, or if it has returned, that we would treat it. And so far it has not returned, praise God. The second major concern, what does this infertility mean for our lives? No bio kids. How do I feel about myself as a man in light of this news? How does Kelly feel about herself as a woman? Something that we had in our vision for the future had just been plucked away. We've come to learn since that day that infertility affects about 15% of couples who are trying to get pregnant. Half of those experience male infertility and half experience female infertility. 
it's very common, but it's also quite taboo to talk about. Part of that is because people seem afraid to confront the loss that comes with infertility. The mental and emotional adjustment to loss is called grief. And this was a significant grief for us to process. We've had to learn how to walk through grief. I've come to understand grief as the shadow side of love. If I choose to love much in my life, if I open up and love much, then I will grieve much. The more I open my heart to attach to others, the more I'll grieve when I must let go. Still, I would rather love much. We found that we can walk through the grief with confidence that we are accompanied. God is with us. Our church family and our family family, they're with us. It's messy, but when the risks we take to love are godly ones, it has felt absolutely worth it. Our infertility grief opened up an opportunity and time to approach adoption. So we researched, evaluated, and discussed all the options for using our parental energy, our risk to love and grieve, our time and money. In all of the unknowns of adoption, it's easy to be afraid of the process and what is to come. So we looked at foster care versus public adoption versus private adoption. And while I had the experience of being an older sibling to foster babies, Kelly had not. She felt that the grief of wanting a child for so long and then caring for a child for a time and then saying goodbye, that was too much to bear for her. So we couldn't enter into this in disagreement, and I wanted to stand with Kelly. So we chose private adoption because of all the routes, it gave us the least likelihood of the grief of caring for our first child and then losing that child. Soon after we finished our application with our adoption agency, we were selected by a mother for placement of her nine-month-old girl and an unborn sibling. I've never been to a meeting in my life as simultaneously courageous, beautiful, painful, and awkward as an adoption match meeting. It was between us and a mother who's placing her children for adoption with us. We spent almost a month building a relationship with her and with the nine-month-old child. It was hard, it was beautiful, and did I mention it was hard? Then we all signed the adoption papers one day in our living room, and Kelly and I became parents with one more on the way. It was a complex beginning of this adoption with a child who was right at the age of separation anxiety. This means she was freaking out. She was crying and screaming all the time. It was hard. We were taken beyond what we thought we could handle, parenting a grieving child and certainly sleep deprivation. But after three weeks, things were settling in, and we were all beginning to heal. On day 22 after adoption day, the very thing we'd been trying to prevent by going with the private adoption over foster care happened anyway. In some types of California private adoption, a biological parent has 30 days after the adoption paperwork is signed to change her mind and reclaim her parental rights. Our new daughter's biological mom did just that, and the adoption unraveled. Six hours after I got a text from the adoption agency... Uh, we brought our daughter to the adoption agency, sat in a room with her first mother, and handed her back. That was some serious grief, shock, and pain, and more grief for all of us, all of us involved in that day. To be clear, this is quite a rare occurrence, but sometimes adoptions fail. This failure re-engaged grief about my body, my ability to be a parent. It was especially hard to watch Kelly grieve at that level. And yet the very real gift from that season of loss was growth of character. 
I didn't feel particularly young anymore. But in time, I felt stronger, resilient, and somehow healthier. As we healed, we felt that our loss was leading us to be willing to risk more. We experienced a community that supports us through grief in so many humbling and beautiful ways. We were alive on the other side of this traumatic season, and we wondered what that meant for us. Specifically, we wondered if God was calling us to face what we had feared in the first place and become foster parents. In addition to visiting Daoud and the Tent of Nations farm, one of the highlights of my trip to Israel and Palestine was visiting the old city of Jerusalem. It kind of surprised me, actually, how much it affected me. I don't consider myself super sentimental, but it was powerful to walk in the places where the stories of Scripture take place. I was extra surprised that I had one of those hear-from-God moments on the Mount of Olives. It's so cliche, but it really happened. Um, I have never heard an audible voice from God, and I honestly don't even tend to feel really clear direction from God either. In spite of this, I've learned to trust God's working in me and to trust the wisdom of those around me speaking into my life when making decisions and trusting that that's how God works. But I went into the week in the Holy Land seeking direction Brian and I had decided to take a week, this week apart to di- discern if we would throw out our whole application with our adoption agency, including thousands of dollars of adoption fees, and become foster parents. It was such a big and risky step. How would our community and family handle it? Mary, how would our community handle it? <laughs> she remembers those days. <laughs> um, What would it mean if we would never get to be a forever family with children? What would it feel like to parent a child again and hand them back to their biological parents? We knew the pain of this grief. We really knew it. And we knew that foster care does not equal adoption. In fact, the goal of fostering is not adoption. The goal is to care for and hold a child while they wait while they watch and wait to see if their parents can do the work they need to do in order to be safe parents again. Could we indeed wait with them in this contested space? Could we, as Daud does in his life, hold them and believe in a good end? If not tomorrow, then after tomorrow. Even if the likely scenario is that the good end would be us holding them And then, with unclenched hands, giving them back to somebody else to nurture. Brian and I needed a week away from the conversations between us to listen. I just happened to have the opportunity to listen in the Holy Land. Um, Our group toured the old city of Jerusalem for only one day of the trip. We started at the top of the Mount of Olives, outside the city walls, and toured down the mountain where Jesus would have walked and entered Jerusalem. This is where the scripture that was read today takes place. As Jesus is continuing his journey toward Jerusalem, preaching and living in his very body, his message of love and forgiveness, justice and mercy, the very word that threatened the powerful in the city and that would lead those powerful to kill him. 
If you read earlier on in Luke, you will see that Jesus is pointed towards Jerusalem for a very long time. Other chapters in Luke speak of Jesus setting his face toward Jerusalem or making his way toward Jerusalem or telling his disciples what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. He's kind of fixated. Jesus knows where he's going and he knows what's going to happen there. His ministry of healing and love and truth-telling about the reign of God that stepped on the oppressors and the oppressive systems of the day began way before he asks for a donkey to ride down the hill into Jerusalem. There is a place that we visited on the Mount of Olives, also referenced in scripture today, called Dominus Flevit, which is translated, The Lord Wept. There's a chapel there and some gardens. It's a place to remember when Jesus stopped almost at the end of his lifelong journey to Jerusalem in obedience to God the Father and gazed at the city. I was impressed by how small and close everything is in Israel and Palestine. This huge biblical world I grew up learning about is actually a fairly compact geographical location. A city of 2,000 years ago is on a totally different scale than a city of today. And so sitting outside the chapel at Dominus Flevit, I was taken by how close the Temple Mount is to that area. 30-minute walk, maybe? As I peered through the trees that day at the Dome of the Rock that now sits where the temple was, I couldn't help but think about the choice that Jesus faced on that hillside. As he wept over Jerusalem, over the blindness of the city that could not see the salvation that was offered them through the love of God, he had a choice. He could continue to walk in love and obedience to the Father into the heart of the city where he was going to encounter suffering and death. Or he could have turned around. I don't know that I've ever heard an audible voice from God, but I can tell you in that moment there was such a deep impression on my heart that I followed Jesus. He walked in love into the face of suffering and in doing so continues to bring light and life to us now. And if I am truly going to be a follower of this Jesus, I am going to have to do the same. And it was in that moment that I knew I was going to have to face my fears about foster care because God was calling me to love the kids in my community with my whole heart, even if that meant that I was going to suffer as a part of that love. And I had a deep sense that I was not alone. God would be with me, with us. And that many others had walked into hard places before me. And that many other people had had hard work move in on them without them ever seeking it out. We were not alone. We were gonna be foster parents. Brian's week of discernment led him to the same conclusion, and we made quick work of finding a foster agency, doing our application, and doing all the work we needed to do to get certified. The day that our last piece of paperwork came through, I got an email from our social worker first thing in the morning saying we were officially certified as foster parents. Um, I read it and thought, I should take a shower. We might be getting a baby today. Um, And by the time I was out of the shower, no joke, my phone was ringing. The reality is there's not enough foster families for the number of foster kids who need homes most of the time. We picked up a little baby that day at the hospital. He was only two days old. 
After three and a half months, that sweet little guy went to live with another um, one of his family members who was able to care for him. We said our big goodbye. We grieved. Friends took care of us. We loved big, and we let go. And we knew we were going to do it again. Two months later, in September of 2014, we said yes to caring for twin eight-month-old girls. It was only five weeks after my dad had unexpectedly died. And we had told our foster agency that we were not ready to take another placement, but somehow the call still came. And Brian and I felt led to say yes again, knowing that it would likely stretch us. It did. And then it stretched us some more, and then it stretched us some more. Um, I can honestly say that there is nothing in my life that has stretched me more than the last three years. In June of this year, we adopted our daughters after fostering them for two and a half years. Some people talk about fostering as a roller coaster. It's a good analogy. Twists and turns, anticipation, your stomach dropping, not knowing what's coming next, and that feeling at the end, what was that? But I have to wonder about another analogy. I wonder if foster care is kind of like learning to live in a contested space, where there are lots of social workers and lawyers and biological family and foster parents and advocates who all think they know what is right for this child, this precious gift. A place where love takes effort. And I'm not just talking about loving the child. That's, in many ways, the simple part. I'm talking about loving their family, their community, those who are grieving because of loss. I'm talking about showing kindness to social workers and lawyers and judges who are um, not always the easiest people to get along with. And at the same time, being committed to telling the truth and advocating for justice in a broken system that doesn't always know how to care for the most vulnerable among us. I think again of Daoud, whose whole life work was to live well, is to live well in his home, on his land. And I think of that sign on his gate, we refuse to be enemies. And I think of how he believes in peace, a good end, that it will come, if not tomorrow, then after tomorrow. And I think foster care is this at its best. As foster parents, we have been asked to live well in our home, to steward the lives of these children whose present and future are all contested by us flawed people and broken systems. And at our best, we refuse to be enemies. And we believe that a good end will come, even if that end leaves us heartbroken. So let me leave you with some of the good that has come from our story of fostering. First of all, our daughters are not prizes that we got at the end of our diligent work. Not at all, actually. No child is a prize, uh, though they certainly bring incredible joy to our family. And if you ever get the chance to meet them, you will see they are amazing humans. Um, They are just not the thing we got because we became foster parents. They are co-journeyers with us through this story of loss and grief healing, creation, love. We have learned a lot about love from them. And speaking of that, 
From the beginning, we have known that Brian and I are not the only ones who love them. Their first mom and dad loved them before we ever knew them, and they still do. During a two and a half year journey together in foster care, we, our daughter's four parents, have had in many, have in many ways refused to be enemies. And now we count each other as family. And let me tell you, that love born out of a contested space is sacred. So I know the invitation may be implied in all that we have shared today, but let me say it explicitly. I spend all day every day with two three-year-olds, and I have learned that being clear is good, okay? (laughs) So here you go, people. (laughs) Open your arms, say yes to love, and God will go with you. Let's pray together. Thank you. Thank you so much. Our gracious God, we do pray that you will embolden all who are in this room to love deeply, to love courageously, to love boldly, and to love in every contested space in which you bring us. And may we then be people who create sacred space as we allow you to work in us and through us and between us and among us. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.